Well, good morning. It is wonderful to be with you and to be uh, gathered together and to even uh, during the greeting time to meet some uh, people who went to school in North Carolina where we served my wife and I for so many years. It is truly amazing what a small world it is and it's encouraging to know that brothers and sisters in Christ can be found absolutely everywhere. I would invite you uh, to turn with me in your copy of God's Word, whether that may be on a phone or a tablet or in an actual paper copy if they still exist. I don't know if that's a thing anymore. Um, but whatever, whatever uh, means you've got, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 21, the very last chapter in the book of John. I want to read uh, for you and with you uh, John 21, the first 19 verses. John chapter 21, reading from the ESV, beginning at verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in in that boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Gracious Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would guide our thoughts and minds even now as we consider your word. We thank you for your word of truth. We thank you that it feeds us, it guides us, it nourishes us, it washes us, that we might be clean 
We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who guides us in understanding your word. We thank you for Jesus to whom your word points. We thank you, Father, for calling us to be part of your family, your kingdom, this church. Pray now, Lord, that you would set aside any any distractions, anything that might get in the way of us hearing from Jesus. Lord, we do not need to hear the words of a man. We need to hear the words of truth. So therefore, Lord, we ask that you would guide us, teach us, and lead us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you think about the whole book of the Gospel of John, um, it, you may come, as, as you read through it, you may be a little bit surprised to discover that John 21 actually exists. If we were to take the time, and we're not going to, but if we were to take the time and read from John chapter 1 all the way through in one flow, you would think, especially if you didn't know 20, chapter 21 was there, you would think that after chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, the very last two verses in chapter 20, we'd be done. After all, if you, if you look there at those last two verses, I didn't read them, but the last two verses of chapter 20 say this, now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What a great way to finish the book. He said, I've I've written all these things. I could write more things. I'm not going to write more things, but I've written these things so that you might believe. Done. Then you turn over the page and think, oh, there's more. (laughs) What in the world is the more doing there? It just doesn't seem to make any sense. This is the perfect ending to the book. Believe in the one that I've just been writing to you about. But you see, there's a problem at the end of John chapter 20. You say, what could the problem be? The problem is what I might call a Romans 10, 13 to 15 problem. You say, wait a minute, Romans 10, 13 to 15 problem. Remind me. Okay, I'll remind you since you asked. Romans 10, 13 to 15 says, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see, you get to the end of John chapter 20, and you have this wonderful written resource, but nobody has yet been sent out. No one has yet gone. No one has yet left to go and take this gospel, take this truth, take this story of Jesus, and go and deliver it to others that they might hear, they might believe. And so John 21 needs to be written so that we understand that indeed there are those who will be sent. And that is what Jesus is doing here with Peter and he's doing here with his disciples. He is making sure they understand they need to be sent. And of course, this makes perfect sense because Jesus had already told them. Back in John chapter 15, he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to send you out. Numerous times throughout all the gospels, we read that Jesus is preparing his disciples that they will go out and they will take the gospel story to the world. Now, as we look at John 21, as we think about this sending, as we think about what's going on here, I want to look at it uh, under four titles or four sections. I want to consider a hopeless life. Then I want to consider a fruitless life. Then I want to consider a fruitful life. And then I want to consider a hopeful life. So hopeful, or sorry, hopeless, fruitless, fruitful, and hopeful. So as we think about this to begin with, first we look at a hopeless life. John 21 doesn't actually start very well. You know, you you finish John 20, you think, yes, wonderful. And then John 21, what happens? We read that Jesus appeared to them again. What is the manner of their appearing? John 21, verse 2. Simon, Peter, and a bunch of other guys, they are standing around. They don't know what to do with themselves. And what does Peter say? 
I'm going fishing. Wow. I mean, what a letdown after the end of John 20. I have written these things so that you might believe and might have life in his name. I have written these things. I could write more wonderful things. And then the very, like, two verses later is, hmm, I'm going fishing. And what do the rest of the disciples say? Okay, me too. (laughs) Wow, you got to be kidding me. Why in the world didn't they go? Jesus already told them, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Jesus already risen. And this isn't like the first time. It's not like they'd never met the risen Jesus. If you go back in chapter 20 of John, you discover they've, they've already seen him twice. They, they, they'd seen the empty tomb. They know that he's fulfilled his purposes. What in the world are they doing? Well, I want you to, if you can, to enter into, shall I say, the emotions that, that surely must have been going on within the disciples themselves. What do I mean by that? It's quite possible that these guys decided, huh? guess we'll go fishing, because they were depressed. You think, depressed? Wait a minute, Jesus rose from the dead. But yeah, but Jesus isn't walking with them in the way that they've been used to for the last three years. For three years, they followed him absolutely everywhere. He taught people. They were amazed by his teaching. He fed people. He performed miracles. He raised people from the dead. He did amazing things, and they were all there all the time. Now, <clears throat> Jesus appears and then disappears. He appears and then disappears. And they're kind of alone, a little bit confused. I wonder if any of you have ever been in a place where you've enjoyed wonderful and rich and deep friendships, and then either those friends have moved away or you've moved away. There can set in a kind of depression. Those wonderful, rich friends that you had, those fellow, that fellowship you had, you didn't even need to continue speaking this, the sentence because that friend could finish it for you. Maybe that friend passed away, I don't know. But what happens when you're no longer able to walk with the person that you love so dearly? You get sad and depressed. And quite frankly, one of the things that can set in is apathy. Ah, whatever. Need to go make friends? Nah, I'll watch Netflix again on my own with my cookies. (laughs) Not that I've ever been there or done that, but you know. So they could have been depressed. They could also have just been discouraged. I suppose that's another form of depression, but discouraged. Why? Because the exciting past was gone. They were used to seeing Jesus do mighty works. They were used to seeing Jesus talk to the Pharisees in ways that they never even imagined anyone could. He took on all the Pharisees, all the Sadducees, all these religious leaders easily. They always thought they had him in some kind of conundrum, and Jesus would simply answer with a sentence and destroy all of their arguments at once. What a wonderful place to live, to live in the past. I wonder if maybe they were a bit discouraged because that exciting past was gone. Have you ever longed for a period of time in your life when you could have, you just want to go back to it? Maybe it was a vacation, a holiday, a time with family, something that was just wonderful. And you're having a little trouble. You have a little trouble moving forward and moving on because you just want to go back to that time and back to that time. It can make you just kind of despondent. I wonder if the if the disciples were a bit confused. After all, this new calling, this whole being sent thing is just plain weird. Like they'd seen Jesus do all these wonderful things and now they're thinking, yeah, but that's because he's Jesus. Who am I that I can do anything? Go and do what? Tell them about Jesus. But I, who am I? I'm a fisherman. I come from a small town in the north of the country where nobody comes from, like northern Arizona. (laughs) If you're from northern Arizona, I apologize. But for for a new guy from Arizona, it doesn't appear like there's much up there. 
But anyway, you, you don't feel like you're from the center of the universe, wherever that might be. And so when you, what, what happens if you're asked to do something new, something different? And if you, maybe if you've been asked to something, do something different or new in your job, what often happens? You say, well, I, I, I've never done that. I don't know how to do that. And what's, what are you told? Too bad. Get it done. Sometimes what happens is you freeze. I don't know what to do. There's too much to do. There's too many things to do. I don't know where to begin. And you just don't do anything. You're actually literally frozen. And when you freeze, what do you do? You go back to the old habits. I wonder if that's what's going here. They, and of course, the most obvious thing in the world is these disciples may have been simply ashamed. They were the ones who denied Jesus. All of them. Peter, of course, did it most spectacularly, but all of them, we read, denied Jesus by running away. They all left him. The sheep were scattered, as Jesus had predicted. And so what are they doing? They're actually kind of, what happens when you, when that ha- when, when, when you say something to someone or you say something about someone and you get caught, what do you want to do? You want to avoid them. You don't want to face up to the fact that you said things you shouldn't have said. You did things you shouldn't have done. And our hum- sinful human heart just wants to hide and sort of say, oh, maybe it'll all pass. So maybe, maybe the, the, the disciples are going that. Who knows? But it seems to me that what's really going on here is that this whole group of emotions, maybe more, who knows, are going through the disciples, and they are reverting to old habits. Rather than pressing forward, they're just going back to the muscle memory, the things they know. And I wonder, can you feel what those disciples felt? Have you gone through things where you're, you're frozen, or you're discouraged, or you're depressed, or you're despondent, or you're uncertain, or maybe even you're embarrassed or ashamed or whatever because of your own sin, and you just, it just sort of stops you? If you've ever had that experience, in other words, if you're human, because we've all been there to some degree or other, then you know what's going on with these disciples and why they aren't just running around telling everyone about Christ. And even people who belong to Jesus can sometimes, temporarily, lose their hope. Sometimes, temporarily lose hope. It almost sounds heretical. Surely, no, Christians, always a people full of hope. But, but the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, when someone dies, remember you do not grieve as those without hope, because we have hope. Yes, of course we have hope. We have hope in eternity. We have hope in salvation. We have hope in Christ. But again, the longer you live, the more you know that there are those moments, there are those times, there are those bits and those seasons of life, if, you, if I can, where it does seem awfully, awfully dark. And there is that sense of the loss of hope, even if just for a season, which is why it is so important to always be with the people of God. Because they are the ones who God has given you to walk through that. But here are the disciples. Jesus himself is walking with them. They may have temporarily lost hope. What happens when you temporarily lose hope? Well, that leads us to our second point. What ends up happening is there's a kind of a fruitless life. Because when we lose hope, we start to not only revert to our old habits, we also start to live in our own strength. We also start to live in our own wisdom. We also start to go our own way. And what happens when we live in our own strength? What happens when we rely on our own wisdom? What happens when we simply go our own way? Verse 3 of chapter 21 tells us, what did you catch? Very last words, they caught nothing. They caught nothing. You see, living your own way, living my own way, will lead to having no impact for myself or the world around me. 
When I'm relying on my own strength, my own wisdom, my own way, there will be no impact of of eternal value. Back in John 15, Jesus said to the disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if you're a believer here this morning, if you're a Christian here this morning, especially if you've been a Christian for a while and you know the Bible reasonably well, my guess is if I were to say to you, do you believe God's word? Do you believe Jesus that apart from me, you can do nothing? We we all say, yes, absolutely. But you see, Peter and the other disciples here learned the depth of what we really are signing up for when we say that we believe apart from Jesus we can do nothing because they had to learn that we can't even do what we think we can do apart from God. I mean, think about Peter, right? So Peter's there and all the other disciples, and they're kind of discouraged, despondent, who knows, ashamed, whatever. He says, I'm going fishing. In other words, I'm going to do the one thing that I've done for 30 years, since I was old enough to be in the boat with my dad, who I'm guessing his dad was probably a fisherman as well, since I was old enough to be in the boat with him, I've gone with him fishing. I know fishing. This I can do. This I can accomplish. This I can be successful. I've done it my whole life. But you see, he's also doing it having to some degree turned away from following Jesus. Not in the sense that he's an unbeliever and he's denied Christ, but in the sense that he just wants to go his own way. He's just going back to the the old habits, his old way of life, and he thinks it'll be fine. What happens? He can't even do that. Without Jesus, we can't even do the things we think we should be able to do as though it's all for me. No, no, Jesus is the one who gives us the ability to do all things. There's no percentage divide between, well, God provides this much, and then I provide that much. No, God is the one who even allows fish to get into the net. God is the one who, who, who oversees all things. You see, apart from Jesus, the disciples had to learn, apart from Jesus, they really can't do anything. Now, one of the most intriguing parts about this for me is when we read verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore and he asked them, have you caught anything? Jesus is God. He knows everything. Does it strike you as strange that he waits until the morning when they're coming back with nothing to address them. In other words, why didn't Jesus go the night before? As the sun was setting and they're getting in their boats and they're going on their way, why didn't Jesus stop by and say, hey guys, 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 what are you doing? You shouldn't be fishing now. You should be not fishers of fish. You should be going out being fishers of men. But he didn't do that, did he? God in his wisdom, Jesus in his wisdom, decided to wait until after they'd made the attempt to go their own way, to to follow their own wisdom, to follow what they thought was best. Why? Why didn't Jesus step in earlier? I think the reason is that because sometimes we need to experience fruitlessness so God can open our eyes to see that we need him. Sometimes we need to experience fruitlessness so that God can open our eyes to see that we really need him. Because sometimes it just takes that experience you know what that's like. Sometimes you might be describing your, what you do for a living to somebody. For example, me, when someone says, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a provost. Well, that immediately means nothing to everybody on the planet. <laughs> we have no idea what that means. Okay, great. 
Then I try to explain it, and, and the glaze just doesn't go away. <laughs> Nobody cares. Nobody has any idea. I don't know what that means. Now, if I then brought them with me to work for a couple of weeks, like, oh, in other words, they need to experience something before they can understand it. You need to experience something before they... If you're a parent, you know this for sure, because not only have you lived it, but now you're watching your children live through it. They need to experience some things. Even when children are very small, they think they know what's best at the incredible age of three. But sometimes in order to teach them, you need to let them experience something under certain conditions so they're not hurt. But they have to experience so that they can then understand. The same is true with us. The same is true with Peter and the disciples here. They needed to experience that when you go your own way, when you go with your own wisdom, and you go on your own strength, you will ultimately be fruitless. And sometimes God allows you to go down that road so that you realize, I really do need him. So I thought about this, I thought about two examples, one from church history and one from the Bible. I don't know if you know the name John Wesley. If you know anything about Methodists or Methodism, John Wesley is the one who actually sort of more or less started Methodism. But John Wesley for his whole life was actually an Anglican pastor in the 18th century. And he he ministered mainly in England, but he also traveled to a a country you may have heard of. uh, It was just beginning, the United States. I don't know, you may know this one. But at any rate, he he would travel here from time to time. And it was in Georgia. Well, John Wesley had been raised in a good Christian home, and he knew, he knew the gospel, he knew the Bible, he knew all these wonderful things, and he'd gone to university, he actually went to Oxford, he went to divinity school, he got his degree, uh, and while he was there, he was part of a group of people who just loved to serve Jesus. Then he graduated, and he thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and, and preach the Bible to all the people who need to know. And he even traveled all the way over to Georgia to, to preach to everyone in, in Georgia, in this new world. But what did he meet time and time and time again? He was so frustrated because time and time and time again, nobody cared. It was utterly fruitless. He was getting a little bit frustrated because he was really, really trying hard. He was going at it. He was staying. You can read this in his, in his journal. We have his journals. And John Wesley was super frustrated because as late as, up as, he, as late as he stayed up and as early as he got up, as much as he made the effort, all of these things going on, nothing And then he goes and meets a guy named George Whitfield, who's seeing tens of thousands of people come to Jesus. And then he talks to a group called the Moravians, a group of missionaries uh, coming out of Central Europe. He meets them. They're seeing all kinds of fruit. And he is absolutely beside himself. And he is disturbed by this. And he, he got so depressed over it. And he had cried out to God. And he had no idea what to do until he wandered into a church one day, quite by random in London. And he just sat down. And the preacher gets up. And he says, I'm going to, and he preaches on a text. In Romans, and he said, I want to read just a brief portion of Martin Luther. He's from the Reformation in the 16th century. I want to read a brief portion of Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. Now, if you want to learn how to preach well, let me tell you rule number one, don't read from a commentary. <laughs> it's just, it's not, you know, it's not the way to do things. But this guy just gets up there. He doesn't know what he's doing. So he just, all right, I'm just going to read from a commentary. He begins reading through a commentary on what is the gospel. And John Wesley, while he's sitting there, it dawns on him like it's never dawned on him before. I'm doing everything in my own strength, and I have not given this over to Jesus. And some have said that this is the moment in which he was actually saved. He thought it was all about him, his effort, his wisdom, his trying, his strength. From that moment on, John Wesley went on to have as wonderfully fruitful a ministry, as George Whitfield had seen tens of thousands, possibly more, come to faith in Christ because he gave it all over to Jesus and said, it's all you. It's all you. I think in a different sort of way, the same thing is true of Moses. Do you remember Moses in the Old Testament? Moses, who was 
put in that basket in the, in, on the Nile River and then is saved by one of Pharaoh's daughters and then is raised. And he's raised where? He's raised in Pharaoh's palace. He's still allowed to know who his real mother is and she gets a chance to, uh, to, to, to raise him as well, in the, at least in the early years. And, and he knows who his people really are. And what does Moses do at one stage? He really wants to help his people get out from under oppression. So he's going to figure this out. And one day, as an Egyptian taskmaster is beating one of his own people, Moses steps in. And there must have been some kind of rage in Moses because he ends up killing the taskmaster. He then buries him and puts the sand over top, hopes nobody sees and moves on. Then eventually he's, he's, he's caught on this and he has to run away. You see, that's Moses trying to save someone else in his own strength, his own wisdom, his own effort, apart from God. Moses just wanders around the desert for year after year after year until God calls him to lead his people. How? You're going to lead my people according to my strength, according to my wisdom. You see, I'm the one who will do this. And tremendous success. And you see, this brings us from hopelessness and fruitlessness towards a fruitful life. That's where Jesus ultimately wants us all to live. He wants us to live in the joy of fruitfulness. And that's what we see here in in John 21. Jesus calls out, he said, do you have any fish? And they say no. And he says, put the net on the other side. Put it on the right side. Now, some of you may have been to Israel. I was in Israel about, I don't know, seven years ago or so. I was, I was teaching at a school there. And uh, the guy who, was, who had invited me was taking me on a, a, a trip around the country. And uh, it, was, it was fantastic fun. And we were, we were in uh, close to Capernaum. And there was this little place where they had discovered, apparently in mud and muck somewhere, as archaeologists are want to find things, the remnants of an old fishing boat from probably the first century. So they actually built a re- creation of what they, you know, based on the dimensions and so forth, and said, this is probably something close to the kind of fishing boat that would have been used by the disciples. So I'm sitting there thinking, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. But I'm also looking at thinking, this is also tremendously small. (laughs) It is not a big boat. So when I read this, let's just imagine that that boat is something close to what these guys would have had. I think, okay, take your nets and put them from the left side onto the right side. I mean, you're only stretching, what, six, maybe seven feet of difference It's not like you're in an enormous oil tanker and you've got like 200, 300 yards and it's a whole different thing. No, this is like from here to here. Clearly, this is going to be a miracle. So Jesus says, put your nets on the other side. And of course, it's a lesson for them. It's a lesson for us. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, you can accomplish the unimaginable. Who in the world takes a net from the left side, moves it six feet over and puts it on the right side and catches 153 large fish instantly? Only somebody who is working according to obedience to Christ. Only someone who has said, Jesus, it's all you and it's not me. Only someone who says, I'm going to lay down my own wisdom, my own strength, my own way, and I will follow you. And of course, this is a kind of lived parable for these guys. They're beginning to realize this is Jesus. They didn't recognize him at first, but this is Jesus. They're recognizing, hold on, I'm, I'm sure this is going on in their minds. They're thinking, wait a minute, didn't he say we would be fishers of men? Something is happening here. But more important than all of that, I think verse 7 is fascinating. There's a lot going on in John 21. I wish we had the time to go over, but verse 7 is absolutely fascinating. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, this is after the catch of fish, it is the Lord. And then Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord and he put on his outer garments for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Then we read, of course, by the end of verse eight, this is about a hundred yards off. Now think about that for a moment. For those of you who are swimmers or if you've done any swimming, he's first of all, he's stripped down for work. 
which probably means he's in his little skivvies. He's got his swimsuit on. That's all he's got on. Why? Because it's hot work, it's sweaty work, and you're probably going to fall in the water at some point. So you take off all your outer garments and you just work in your bathing suit. You just, that's just a smart move. Work in your shorts, whatever. And he's a hundred yards out from the shore. They realize that's Jesus. What does he do? He doesn't jump out of the boat and start, you know, dive in and swim in his swimming trunks, which makes total sense. He gets dressed in the boat and then jumps in. Have you ever tried to go in water when you've got some like long clothes on? It drags you down. He's lucky he didn't drown. I mean, he's swimming through this water. It must have been the most bizarre thing to look like as this robe is coming all over his head and it's getting on his arm. He just can't move and then he's sort of tied up in it. And he's just, he's flailing away and then he finally gets to about 10 yards out. He can stand up and he starts running in. Why? Well, I suppose there could be any reason. But it, this, this whole scenario really made me think of Luke chapter 5. The very beginning of Jesus' ministry when he's, when he's met these disciples same thing happened. They're out one night. They're trying to catch fish. They don't catch anything. Jesus says, try the other side. And they catch so many fish, the nets start to break. And at that moment, Peter runs up to Jesus, and he falls down before him. And as he falls down before him, he says, depart from me, for I am sinful. And I wonder if in this moment here in John 21, 7, Peter is doing what really I think you and I would do. Here's the paradox of being a believer. If Jesus were right now to make himself visible right here and look all of you eyeball to eyeball, you would want to do, if you're a believer, you'd want to do two things simultaneously. You would want to run to him because he's your only hope of forgiveness and salvation. But at the same time, you'd want to cover yourself up because you realize I'm a sinner. And you think about all those things that you've said and you've done. You think about all those things that you haven't said and you haven't done. You think about all your failures and shortcomings. And so there's a tension there. I'm going to Jesus. Oh, but he can see me for who I am like nobody else. I think Peter understood that. And what I love about this is that here is this man who understands, I need to cover myself up, even as I'm running to the only one who will love me with such deep love that he accepts me. As all of this is happening, I love the fact that the only thing Peter can bring is his shame. But exactly what Jesus brings is to confer acceptance and forgiveness and hope. That is the beginning of fruitful ministry. That is the beginning of a fruitful life when we recognize that we must run to the one who can forgive us even when he is the one against whom we have sinned. And I think John is writing John 21. He didn't finish with John 20. He's writing John 21. Why? In part because he wants you to live in that space for the rest of your life where you're always running to Jesus even while you feel the weight of your sin. Because Jesus alone is the one who will still reach out his hand and he will still accept you. He will still draw you in. He will still invite you into fellowship. He will still draw you to the fire. He will still prepare a meal for you and he will still fellowship with you. And that, of course, leads us finally to the fourth point, a hopeful life. A hopeful life. 
I think the very best part, there are lots of interesting things in John 21, but the best part of John 21 is what I've titled this sermon, Relentless Forgiveness. Relentless Forgiveness. You'll notice there in verse 5 of John 21, Jesus said to them, children, children, that's kind of an interesting, interesting term there. Now, I'm going to break a rule that I always tell all my students. I always tell my students, never from the pulpit should you ever mention Greek or Hebrew because it just makes you look like you're smarty pants and you're really not. And then it'll also make people feel like they can't read the Bible unless they read Greek or Hebrew, and that's not true. If you have it in whatever language you read, then you've got the Word of God. So don't do it. I'm now going to do it. (laughs) So I apologize. But that word children is interesting. Because John uses the word children, there's two, there's well, essentially two different words that John could have used here. The word he chooses for children is the masculine plural, because he's referring to all the men, of a word that the last time it was used, it was used in the feminine singular in a courtyard as a servant girl, a servant child, asked Peter, as said to Peter, you followed him too, and Peter denied it. Jesus starts by identifying these guys in the same way that he's, in other words, he's recalling, he's doing something in their minds. He's connecting in their minds. I'm calling you this name because that's the name that we would call the girl that was in the courtyard where all of you guys ran from and Peter, you denied me. It's got to hurt just a little bit. Then if you look at verse 9, you read that, 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 the, people, that the disciples came and there was a charcoal fire in that place. Charcoal fire is only used two times in the entire New Testament. It's used once here. The other time it's used is in the courtyard when Peter was there denying Christ and he went to a charcoal fire because it was cold and he warmed his hands. A second description of a reminder. Jesus has recreating the place of Peter's failure. He's calling him by the same name as the servant girl to whom he denied Jesus, and he's, he started up a charcoal fire. Then, of course, what does he do? He says, do you love me? Three times. How many times did Peter deny Christ? Three times. Jesus is doing this on purpose. He is recreating, as it were, on the beach, the very place of Peter's greatest sin and failure. But not only that, you'll also notice that each time that that, uh, Jesus talks to Peter, he says, verse 15, Simon, son of John. He then says in verse 17, Simon, son of John. He says it three times, Simon, son of John. Now, if you remember, you may not know this, but if you don't, don't worry about it, but you may remember that, that Peter... That's not his first name. His, that says, that's a new name given to him by Jesus. When he first meets Jesus, he's Simon. And Jesus says, I'm going to call you Peter. So not only has Jesus recreated the stage, we have him calling them by the name that is known by the, the, the servant girl to whom Peter denied them and everyone ran away. And then he also recreates the stage by having a charcoal fire here. He also creates the, recreates the, the, the point of denial by asking him three times, as though to say, you do remember, you denied me three times. But then more than that, he starts calling him by the name that he knew before, that he was called before he knew Jesus. Wow. This hurts. No wonder Peter said, we read by John's gospel, Peter was grieved. He hasn't missed any of this. It's not just, yeah, he's asking me three times if I love him. That's annoying, but I see what he's doing now. I see what he's doing. 
What is Jesus doing? Taking Peter back into the past. I think what Jesus is doing is saying, Peter, I know your past and you know your past. Now, this is not a guilt trip. Guilt trips are what Satan does. Jesus is not doing that. Jesus is saying, I am calling you to live in the ever-present, unrelenting forgiveness that I give. I am recreating everything to remind you of your lowest point in your entire life. And I am also telling you, follow me because I love you. I forgive you. I am reconciling us again. I am redeeming you. You see, Jesus, when he is saying that, I'm calling you to live in the ever-present work of my unrelenting forgiveness, he's saying, do that. Why? Because then I can transform you, that unrelenting forgiveness. If Peter, if you will live there, don't live in that hopelessness of, I'm going fishing. Live in the hopefulness of, I am transforming you from the Simon of the past into the Peter of the present and future. I am transforming you from the Simon son of John to the Simon son of God, one of my children. I am redirecting your love from what you loved in the past, which was just being a fisherman and carrying on with life in general, to redirecting your love towards me, your redeemer, your savior, the one who will give you unimaginable fruitfulness. I'm going to redefine, and don't miss this, I, Peter, am going to redefine how you think every morning when you hear that rooster. Consider that when Peter denied Jesus for the third time, the rooster crowed as Jesus had prophesied. Don't think for a moment that every morning between then and this period in John 21 that Peter did not feel the pinch of the guilt every single morning as the rooster calls, I denied him. The next morning, I denied him. The next morning, I denied him. Worst of all, we read in Luke's gospel that at that third denial, Jesus looked him in the eye. There was direct contact. Can you imagine living with a daily reminder that you denied Jesus? But the wonder of John 21, by recreating all of this past, is that Jesus is saying, I want to transform that rooster call so that every morning from now on, you do not hear in your head, I denied him. I want you to hear in your head, I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. I am reconciled. And he has called me to love him, and I do because he loved me first. And I know that I'm going to live in the midst of that for the rest of my days. You see, that's a better ending to John's gospel. It was wonderful that John 20 ended with, here's the truth that I've told you. I could write you a million more things and I've written this so you might believe. But better than that, he's saying, I don't only want you to believe, I want you, the church of Jesus Christ, like the apostle Peter and all of his disciples, I want you to live in the the knowledge of the unrelenting forgiveness of Jesus. I'm going to give you some homework because I work at an educational institution. The homework is this. I don't know how you wake up. Some of you are probably morning people. I don't especially like you for that. The rest of us natural fallen human beings have an alarm clock. 
I'm not going to suggest that you set your alarm to be the call of a rooster because your spouse will hate you after about three days. But I want you, at least for the next week, when that alarm goes off, I want the first thing in your head, if you have to put a little post-it note by your alarm or by your phone or however you do this, your wristwatch, I don't know, whatever, I want you to have something that reminds you when you get up, I am waking up into the unrelenting forgiveness of Jesus who redeemed me. Don't wake up feeling guilty. Don't wake up feeling sad, depressed, whatever it may be. Even if you are in a place of depression, even if you are in a place of discouragement, wake up and remind yourself, he who redeemed Peter, who forgave Peter, has redeemed and is forgiving me. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people who live into that unrelenting grace, that unrelenting forgiveness. And Lord, I give you thanks this morning that, while I didn't realize it, we would be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Father, I thank you and praise you that we have the opportunity to celebrate this wonderful ordinance together, that we might take the bread and we might take the cup and thereby remember your death and resurrection and proclaim it to others. And in doing so, Father, I pray that even this morning we might be a people who recognize that we only partake in this supper because of the unrelenting, wonderful mercy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.